0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Suzanne Clark with the U.S. Chamber. We are delighted that you were able to join us today. Thank you so much. This is the fourth episode of A Path Forward put on by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, and the Foundation's goal is to help the entire business community, every size, sector, and corner of the country, figure out how we get back to work safely and sustainably. So far, we've talked in Talk, talking. See what's happening to me during this quarantine. I hope my mother's not watching. So far, we've spoken with a Harvard epidemiologist. We did a deep dive into the critical area of testing. And today we're going to talk about an issue that's absolutely critical for returning to work and reviving the economy, workplace safety. Safety is something, of course, that companies are always focused on. No matter what your industry is, business owners want employees and customers and guests to be able to work and conduct business free from harm or concern. It's something that we often take for granted. But without confidence in safe workplaces, the free enterprise system simply does not work. It goes without saying that the business community is facing unprecedented health and safety challenges today, and without a roadmap or a clear-cut standard for the crisis, American companies have been adapting and improvising. Many essential businesses, like grocery stores or pharmacies, have not closed at all and have found new ways to keep their customers and their employees safe. Meanwhile. Those that have closed are eager to open their doors and make sure that when they do, it's safe and healthy and sustainable. They have many questions about returning to work and we're hearing from them all the time. How should social distancing be done at a retail store? Is it different for an office building or on a construction site? Should workers' temperatures be taken every day? And if so, who takes their temperatures? What should be done if they have a fever? Should all employees wear masks? Who would supply the masks? What kind of masks? How often do they change the mask? With all of these unresolved questions, it's important that we learn from one another, share our successes and help educate our colleagues and friends and the public about all the things that are being done to protect them and can be done to protect them. So this is first and foremost a matter of safety, but it's also a matter of instilling confidence. People aren't going to go back to work or leave their homes until they feel safe doing it. When we begin to reopen, people have to feel comfortable if they're going to resume any kind of normal activity. That will be crucial to driving recovery and economic growth. So these are some of the issues that we're going to dive into today for our discussion. We're really delighted to welcome Dr. Angela Hewlett, who is Medical Director of the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit. As head of that unit, she is is a leading expert on the latest methods for curbing the spread of infectious diseases like COVID-19. We're also joined by Randy Owen, the CEO of Thermoworks, a bio company that creates precision thermometers for a variety of industries. We're really looking forward to hearing from Rodney McMullen, chairman and CEO of Kroger. As head of an essential business, he has nearly 2,800 retail stores nationwide he's responsible for, and they've learned a lot really quickly about safe operations in the time of the coronavirus. Finally, we'll welcome Paul Benda, Senior Vice President of Risk and Cybersecurity Policy at the American Bankers Association. He's gonna share specific ways that banks have been working to keep their employees and customers safe. We'll incorporate audience questions into each one of these segments. So please use your chat function and uh, I'll be reading them as we go and feeding them to our speakers so we make sure that we get your good questions answered. Let me turn first to Dr. Hewlett. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. I wonder if you could start by helping us understand some of the science behind the tools and practices that keep us safe. I mean, it sounds simple, but could you explain what an elevated body temperature actually tells us or doesn't tell us about someone's health in relation to this virus?
1: Sure, well, an elevated body temperature can indicate uh, you know, fever, which is a component of patients that have had COVID-19. You know, Fever is relatively common, but is definitely not present in every case. And so there are other symptoms that are present um, more commonly than fever, things like coughing, um, often shortness of breath, that sort of thing. And so fever is a component of the illness, but it is not a a good way to diagnose the illness because we know that a lot of patients that are confirmed to have COVID-19 never had a fever um, and don't go on to have a fever throughout their clinical illness or even are not having symptoms at all, including fever.
0: What does that lead you to believe or advocate in terms of health screenings in the workplace?
1: So fever screening, I I do believe that there's some utility in screening for fever. What you're looking for are are sick people. So individuals that are kind of in the throes of the illness and this particular illness of COVID-19, um, but that being said, there are a lot of limitations to fever screening in the workplace because you may not pick up individuals that are still shedding virus, but have either recovered from the illness um, or individuals that have no symptoms to begin with, including fever, you won't pick those individuals up and they can still spread the illness. Uh, you also, there are some medications that lower fever, you know, our typical acetaminophen or ibuprofen do lower fever. And so if you have a person that's taking one of those medicines, you may not detect the fever. So. I do believe that there's some utility in fever screening especially in people who um, are healthcare workers or have been involved in direct patient care of of patients with COVID-19 but there are a lot of um, a lot of issues with it that you know you really have to think about before employing a um, you know a wide program based on fever screening
0: let's talk for a minute about social distancing you know we're all learning a lot about trying to be six feet apart we imagine that this measure will be with us for the foreseeable future, and it has significant implications for the way people work, whether you're in an office building trying to figure out how you manage elevator crowding, or as I just heard from an audience member here who's a hairdresser, and the hairdresser's saying, are there protocols that could be put in place when you have to do things like shampoo hair or cut hair facing people in such close proximity. So with different kinds of industries, I imagine different types of social distancing, but how do we start to think about this?
1: Well, there's really not a one size fits all approach to this in business, because as you mentioned, there are different types of businesses, some of which may be able to social distance fairly you know, easily uh, because they work you know, further away from each other or they work outdoors or things like that where social distancing is possible. And then you have your other businesses as you mentioned uh, beauty salons or one of those who you know it's very difficult to socially distance when you're washing somebody's hair or cutting their hair and so we, there are some ways though that you can still achieve some element of social distancing in even those environments and that is maybe not allowing huge numbers of people into the salon so if you um if you're going to be close to someone to cut their hair you know wearing a mask or having the the uh, the individual wear a mask and that, in that way, you still are close to each other, but you're protecting each other from transmission of illness. But even in that environment, there are still ways to socially distance uh, by modifying the practices of, of the business to not allow as much close contact.
0: When you think about social distancing, one of the questions we get a lot is from, businesses that require high density for their business model. You know, if you think about a cruise ship or a concert venue or a casino, um, are can you imagine any type of social distancing practice that would allow businesses like that to reopen?
1: So That's going to be very tough. And I do feel that we won't see our usual normal of crowded casinos, crowded cruise ships, um, you know, um, businesses working, you know, with individuals working kind of shoulder to shoulder without protection for a while. I, I do believe that things will be different for a while. There are some things that we can do to try to decrease the probability of spreading an illness in businesses like that. One of those things is limiting the number of individuals that can come in. Um, you know, for instance, if you are in a casino and you're used to having thousands of people on the casino floor, maybe it's more reasonable to allow less individuals so that people can stay further apart. Um, the practice of wearing masks, both for the customers and the employees, is also something that can be done to try to prevent the spread of illness in that type of environment. But it's it's difficult. I don't think things will be back to normal for a while. Um, I wish that they were, but <laughs> really right now, there's just too much risk involved in bringing things back to normal. And what we need to do is figure out innovative ways to um, to bring things as close to normal as we possibly can without putting our employees and, and customers at risk
0: you mentioned masks a few times do you think these can be uh, homemade masks do they have to be surgical grade masks uh, or I think we hear a lot from employers about what they should be trying to procure right now what is your advice
1: well the mask issue is twofold so, you know, people wear masks to protect themselves. So, for instance, a healthcare worker caring for a patient with COVID-19 uh, may wear a specific type of mask that is really designed to protect the healthcare worker. Whereas other types of masks, um, including surgical masks and um, and homemade masks or bandanas or things of that nature, are really designed to protect other people from the wearer. So, what we're doing is we're trying to to mask someone in order to decrease the secretions. Um, whether that's from talking, sneezing, coughing, or any of that, that um, are allowed to to you know to come out into the environment and potentially infect others. And so, so there's there's a twofold reason behind that. You may have heard the adage, you know, my mask protects you, and your mask protects me. And that's really what we're getting at here is to try to to have a situation where, whether it's you know it's a homemade mask versus a um, a surgical mask, we're trying to protect others by wearing our own masks and that can can be applicable to employees um, as well as customers and in the business environment.
0: It sounds like you're saying it doesn't have to be a surgical grade mask to offer some kind of protection.
1: No it doesn't. It it depends. You know the different materials also make a difference and there are some guidance documents available through the CDC and other places that discuss the type of, uh, of materials that you know, that are, are able to block more secretions than others. Um, you know that for people making their own masks and that sort of thing. I would say that employees should, you know, should follow that guidance and look into those options. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that every uh, em- employer needs to provide a surgical grade mask to their employees. Um, I do think they need to provide some good guidance, though, on what type of masks are, are reasonable to wear, and as well as providing those masks for those employees.
0: Moving on to another uh, widely reported topic, you know, you can't turn on the news today without hearing the word testing. Um, we're hearing about all kinds of testing and I'd love to get your take on what type of testing is gonna be necessary to reopen the economy?
1: Well, first of all, two different types of testing that are being discussed. Um, one is testing to find out who is actually infected with COVID-19 and those are the tests that you're commonly hearing about Um, you know hospitals testing people and healthcare setting people being tested in clinics and that sort of thing so that is an entirely different issue than some of the other tests that you're hearing about now in the news which are serological tests or serology and what that means is whether someone has been exposed to the virus or not so to SARS-CoV-2 and has had an illness that maybe was asymptomatic maybe they didn't know they were sick Um, or they had a clinical illness that was not was mild in nature and was not necessarily attributed to covid Um, we really need we really need both right now what we need the most right now is an increase in our tests to diagnose this illness because what we have and is is you know limited testing availability which i do see that improving gradually and hoping to see more of that in in the coming uh, days and weeks But what we really need to know is how many people are actually infected with this, and once we know that, then we can do a lot better job at working in public health, doing contact tracing, you know, really making sure that the contacts of those sick individuals are traced and are asked to stay at home and to self um, quarantine to make sure that this illness does not spread. So we need adequate testing to actually diagnose the illness. And then the serological tests um, have been somewhat problematic, and it's been widely reported in the news that there are a lot of issues with those tests, a lot of false negative results and things like that, which are not helpful. And so I'm really hoping that we'll have a little more reasonable data on these tests going forward so that we can determine who has actually been exposed to this illness and who has not. And there have been some studies looking at the number of people in communities um, who have acquired this illness, and it's a lot more than you would think. You know and because a lot of people don't necessarily have symptoms um, with COVID-19
0: you know it's um, it's so interesting all of the things that employers are thinking about and you've touched on a number of them right there's the testing issue the equipment issue the um, are they becoming doctors are they uh, You know, said, uh, one of our guests here said uh, should employers also be doing pulse ox testing? I read in the New York Times that a doctor said that's really indicative of an issue. And we get questions like that all the time. I think employers are really trying to figure out what their role is here in figuring out if they have a sick population of employees. And I just can't imagine asking all of these employers to turn into doctors. Can you?
1: No, and, and you shouldn't. And really, uh, pulse ox testing really has no... There's no reason to do that in in this type of environment. We don't do that for our employees in the healthcare environment. Um, it's not a really good way to detect whether people are sick or not. Um, the difficult thing is that we don't have a lot of great ways, even with testing, to you know to do that at this point. Um, what I would do is just really emphasize if I had if I had a small business or a business, I would really emphasize to my employees the importance of staying home if you're sick, making sure that we. Um incentivize to stay home if you're sick. you know mm-hmm. so you really don't want to spread um, you know the the uh, covid nineteen in you know any to other employees or to you know to customers, um making sure that those employees have the ability to stay home in uh, that you know whether that's um, paid sick time or other things, other other ways that you can can keep employees at home. allowing for a work from home if if that's feasible. I know a lot of um, a lot in a lot of companies, that's not feasible, but if it is, that's something that can definitely enhance social social distancing, and then just making sure that you're protecting the employees by you know if you providing if you if you utilize masks, I think is definitely a reasonable um, scenario uh, in, in this especially opening up you know in uh, in the relatively near future. I think masks are advisable, and that's something that you should make sure that your employees have you know, training on, have guidance using, and also providing those masks for the employees and potentially for your customers. You have to kind of troubleshoot and decide if you have a store and one of your customers comes in the door without a mask on. Remember, your, um, the mask protects others from you. And so if you have a sick customer that comes in, you really want that person masked as well uh, in order to try to prevent the spread of illness in, in, in your business.
0: Fascinating. Let me, let me ask you one last question before we turn to our next speaker. And it is, I think another place where there's a lot of confusion is that cases are reported so differently. Sometimes you hear on the news about positive test rates, sometimes you hear about a death rate, sometimes you hear about available beds or ventilators. I think it's very difficult for the public to try to follow along even in their own region where they are in the curve of this disease. And so the question is for medical professionals and public health experts, what do you think they're looking at? What has to decline? Uh, or change in if they're going to recommend reopening?
1: Well, first of all, we have to make sure that we have adequate testing so that we really know what's out there. And without adequate testing, you know, it's difficult to determine the rate of disease in a community because we just don't know how many people are actually infected. So once we get adequate testing, once that's available and we're able to really do community assessment um, to determine how much disease is actually out there, then other things we need to do are to have our, our public health authorities. You know they look at hospital bed utilization and whether uh, healthcare facilities have capability to care for very sick patients. Because when and when we open up, eventually there may be another another surge of illness, and we have to make sure that our hospitals will not be overwhelmed if we see a surge of cases. Now we're doing everything we can to try to prevent that surge from happening. Um, by some of these, you know, these modalities that we've been discussing as far as, um, you know, opening, but being very careful about the way that we do it. But we, you know, we really need to know what's going on in the community. Um, We need to make sure that we're seeing those rates decrease, not just over a day or two, but over a sustained period of time, I would say at least a couple of weeks um, before we would consider relaxing some of these, some of these recommendations as far as, um, you know, as businesses staying closed. So there are a few things that, that, you know people can look at actually in fact their local health departments and state health departments often have a grid that actually shows all of this data and um, they've been very good about putting that information out there but it is a lot of information and sometimes very difficult to assimilate
0: I said that was the last question but we have multiple questions about masks if people wanted more information about how to use them how to wash them how to change them how to wear them where where can they find those guidelines
1: the Centers for Disease Control (CDC) actually has a segment on their website that is entirely devoted to that. It talks about the type of masks that are appropriate. It has uh, um, instructions for making your own mask. Um, it has, you know, some instructions for the wearer. And one one thing also to keep in mind about wearing masks is it's actually very important that um, that the wearer not touch their face a whole lot. And you know, you think that a mask may prevent you from doing that. But if you're not used to wearing a mask, you may actually do that more. And that's really the way that this virus can also be transmitted. It is mostly transmitted by respiratory droplets. But if you were coughing into your hand and then you, um, and then, you, know, you touch a surface and then someone else touches that surface and then they reach up and touch their eye, then that, that is a potential way that you can get infected with this. And so when people are asked to wear masks, there needs to be a lot of education involved um, to make sure that they are wearing it the right way and that they're not touching their face more to adjust their mask uh, because they're not used to wearing one, and it's actually a lot harder uh, to do in practice. And if you um, if you watch others, you can see that people touch their faces a lot during the day without thinking about it, and it really takes some training to be able to not do that.
0: It's remarkable. I managed to touch my face with gloves and a mask on the other day in the middle of the grocery store. It was amazing. Um, Dr. Hewlett, this has been very educational. I know our viewers have really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being with us today. Stay safe. Thank you, and thank you again for having me. Absolutely. Okay, I wanna turn to Randy Owen now, the founder and CEO of ThermoWorks. So you uh, make some of the most popular and best food thermometers in the world. Foodies swear by them, professional chefs swear by them. How did you end up in the human thermometer business?
2: We actually uh, produced and sold uh, an oral thermometer and a tympanic membrane thermometer uh, between 2004 and 2010, in January of this year, we decided that that uh, we should be getting back into uh, human thermometers, and by February it was obvious that that uh, we really should do it quickly. And so uh, we we began work on adapting uh, a unit to con- to medical use and. It's now ready for market and our first production batch will be available on the 28th of this month.
0: What is the supply chain like for thermometers now? If you're a CEO watching this program and thinking that you might need a supply of them, how confident should business owners be they can get a hold of the right thermometer?
2: It's fairly difficult right now. Um, There's a worldwide shortage on the infrared sensors. They're called thermopiles. Um, one of the major manufacturers is in Germany, and uh, new deliveries are out 26 weeks on those sensors. So there will be limited supply for weeks or months as people realize they need this kind of a product and are, are rushing to find one. Currently, uh, some of the previously existing brands, uh, you can't even find them on the internet anymore to place an order. So it's a difficult circumstance and and people are rushing to find them.
0: Talk to us a little bit about the supply chain issues. Uh, if I understand your business correctly, you rely on component suppliers outside of the United States for some of your products. Are you seeing any impact on the supply chain on trade restrictions right now or or even in terms of getting new thermometers?
2: Uh, there, There is a little bit of a slowdown in general purpose thermometers, but uh, we have not had any stockouts outs on, on our general purpose or our food service or cooking lines. And so we've been able to maintain a uh, constant supply and we have inventory to handle uh, demand going forward. The biggest issue has been infrared thermometers. Uh, most are made in the Far East. Most are manufactured in China and uh, they are are working above normal capacity to try to fill the demand.
0: Explain to the audience what an infrared thermometer is.
2: It it measures temperature without, without touching the surface that it's measuring. And so there is a sensor, it's an optical device that collects the infrared energy emitted by a surface and converts it into a temperature reading. So, uh, many have seen lasers on these products and think the laser has something to do with it. The laser does not. In fact, is not useful for a forehead temperature because it could do damage to your eyesight. The, the sensor is, is completely passive and is not dangerous in any way to, to the person being read.
0: Are any of these thermometers, do any of these thermometers work from the socially distant Six feet?
2: No, uh, there there are scientific versions of the products that are extremely expensive, that have a long focal distance that could be used from a greater distance. Uh, and there are infrared imaging technologies that can also be used without uh, an operator close to the subject. But those two are really quite expensive. Uh, several thousand dollars, $10,000 and up. Um, the the normal forehead thermometer that people have seen uh, requires that you be within uh, an inch inch and a half of the person's forehead as you measure the temperature but you can extend your arm and and try to maintain as much distance as you can
0: hmm. we just heard from Dr. Hewlett who said you know thermometers aren't a fail safe way To detect the virus, but clearly they have some usefulness in this type of health screening. What do you think about how thermometers can help the situation of getting employees and customers to feel more safe entering the workplace?
2: She's absolutely right. Uh, You can be asymptomatic. Uh, It could be that you've taken something to lower your fever, but the CDC still recommends that businesses measure temperature Of their employees when they're entering the workplace and uh, you're finding localities requiring it. Santa Clara County, San Francisco and other locations around the country are now requiring that even essential businesses measure uh, scan employee temperature when they enter the workplace.
0: One of the uh Audience members is asking, can infrared thermometers available via hardware stores work on people?
2: Um, they would not be FDA cleared uh, for human use. Um, and they may or may not be accurate enough or repeatable enough to rely on the measurement. A uh, Normal uh, uh, core body temperature is 98.6. Uh, the CDC considers 100.4 Fahrenheit to be a fever. And in your scanning, you might be looking for a 100 degree Fahrenheit reading as the threshold where you might have to decide to send the employee home. So if the thermometer you have has an accuracy of plus or minus 5 degrees Fahrenheit, it doesn't do you much good in that process. Uh, there are scientific and industrial thermometers that are meant to measure much higher or much lower temperatures that could be used in a pinch, uh, but you would have to apply certain techniques to to make sure the reading was useful. Uh, Forehead skin temperature is on average five degrees Fahrenheit lower than your core body temperature. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, A human uh, thermometer or a purpose designed forehead thermometer makes a calculation to to give you uh, an oral equivalent of your forehead.
0: So we asked you to come on and talk about thermometers and you did, but before we let you go, let me ask you a question about your business. What is the biggest challenge you're facing right now?
2: Uh, Getting supply of uh, our new forehead thermometer. Um, We have about half our employees are working from home. The other half are in in jobs that require that they physically be here. Uh, We have a warehouse, so we have we have social distancing uh, practices and so forth to spread everybody out. Everyone else in the building, uh, we've also moved their, their workspaces apart so that they're not in close proximity. Um, and we do measure temperature when they enter the workplace.
0: I lied, I have one last question from the audience here before we let you go. Do you, when do you think we'll have enough thermometers available to meet this demand?
2: Um, that's that's a difficult question to answer it, and it will depend on how many, for example, workplaces actually uh, implement temperature screening. Um, we have starting next next week, a constant supply coming in, but uh, pre-orders are, are booking most of the available units. So it may be June, July or even later before you can easily find one or find one again in Walmart. It used to be you could buy a forehead thermometer at a local retail store. Uh, It it may be quite some time before that's possible.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for being with us, Randy. I think our audience learned a lot from you. Good luck in your business and uh, we're all rooting for you.
2: Thank you, likewise.
0: Uh, Let us turn now to uh, Rodney McMullen, who is the chairman and CEO of. Kroger, Rodney, thanks for joining us today. So thousands of Kroger stores have been operating at full speed since this began, and you've had to implement big changes really quickly without interrupting the service that we're all uh, relying on. And so turning to you, how'd you get that done?
3: Hi, Suzanne, thanks for the question. You know, it's one of those things where you go and learn on the fly, and it's really our 460,000 associates working together And everything we're doing, we're focused on protecting our associates and protecting our customers. And you you just are flexible. So one of the first things we did was change the hours of our stores. we reduced the hours so that we'd have more time to clean at night, to restock at night, uh, to give our associates a little bit of time off if that's not your schedule. Uh, Because literally when you were at work, you were uh, working uh, in the March month of March, our business was up 30% as an example. Uh, you're also uh, focused on, uh, you know, cleanliness. Uh, you look at cleanliness in a different way, putting up plexiglass uh, barriers protection. Uh, but it's, you know, it's like every day and multiple times a day, you're looking at what things can you do to help keep people safe and do it in a way that's, uh, that you can scale it and do it quickly.
0: I understand you just mentioned a couple of them, but you've changed a lot of different things. Um, One of the questions we're getting from the audience is they're thinking in their own business about the types of signage that might be important uh, as they think about opening up their own stores and offices. So, okay, you've said no more free samples, but what other changes would we notice if we walked into a Kroger, including signage?
3: Yeah, I'll just give a couple of a few examples. And uh, as you know, we launched uh, uh, KrogerBlueprint.com. For all the details because it's one of those things where as you're in the middle of it you don't think about how many things you're actually doing Uh, but then when you look back and look at the list it's like holy cow it because it's like every day or two we've added something else so like uh, when i went to the store uh, a couple of nights ago on the way home i stopped by a store close to uh, in newport just to say hi and they were uh, cleaning the carts Because between 6 or between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning, we have senior hours and it gets a little bit busier for seniors. So they cleaned all the carts the night before, so literally they were sanitizing every cart uh, showing the cart differently. That's been sanitized. The handles been wiped off. Uh, You'll see a sign as soon as you walk into the store. Please asking people to uh, practice social distancing. Uh, If you look at any place in the store where there would be queuing in place, you'll see floor signage that says, please keep six feet apart. Uh, If you look at our cashier stations, there's a plexiglass protection between the cashier and the customer. If you go to the pharmacy, you would see the same thing. Uh, Any place that there's lines. Uh, We have an in store uh, radio network and every 15 minutes we remind our customers and our associates to practice social distancing. So those are just some of the examples, but you know it's a list of probably 20 or 25 things, and it's really uh, what we have found, and you know Dr. Hewlett b- mentioned it before is you know the constant reminder, uh, the constant visual reminder, and it it really takes everything together because all of us have been in such a habit for you know ever how long we are alive been alive. Uh, to not pay much attention to who's close to you and who's in your space. And today, obviously, that's important.
0: That's really important and and really um, generous, I thought, of Kroger to put out this blueprint for business and help other companies learn from, you know, the process that you all went through. One of the things that's in the blueprint, you talk about giving workers more breaks than usual. What was the thinking behind that?
3: well it's it's a couple of different things one obviously uh, when you go to work in a grocery store you don't think about being an essential uh, service provider and the stress level is a little different so it, some of it is just giving people the opportunity to relax a little bit. Part of it is obviously making sure that you're doing the basic hygiene and washing your hands uh, all the uh, practices that Dr. Hewlett talked about in terms of you know making sure that you're doing the basics and uh, And our associates appreciate it as well, because when you're on, you're on and the, uh, the volume and the intensity of our business is just completely different than a typical experience that any of us have had.
0: Could you talk to us a little bit about the questions that came up in the last two segments about equipment? I think employers are really concerned about, do they need thermometers? Do they need masks? And so are you providing masks? Do you uh, ask allow people to bring their own if they have them from home? What has been your experience?
3: Uh, we have masks that we have procured, but we also let our associates bring some from home. And it's really uh, their option and we find some people make it a fashion statement, uh, which we're uh, totally comfortable and cool with. Other, other people are totally comfortable with using the ones we provide. And uh, you know, and then if you look at our plants and warehouse facilities, we are checking temperature. Uh, in our stores, uh, we are checking uh, temperature in what we've defined as hot spots. And over time, as we can get access to thermometers, uh, eventually we will do that in every store and we ask our associates you know check your temperature before you come to work uh, in addition to us and we have a very uh, generous uh, emergency leave policy that we have put in place if somebody does have an elevated temperature
0: what have you done this is a question from the audience about managing employee spaces so elevators or stairwells or bathrooms um, I think other business owners are looking to learn from you here as well
3: if you look at our offices uh, we for the most part, we are working from home. So uh, elevators uh, there's not as uh, ver- there's not enough people in the office to actually have a problem where in elevators we uh, have a maximum of two people. Uh, we've debated whether it should only be one, but uh, given how few of people that are actually working, that's not been a problem. Uh, bathrooms uh, typically one at a time. Uh, and with our associates, just like our customers, we remind people of the distancing. If you look at our break rooms, we've removed chairs mm-hmm. from our bake break rooms, so there's only enough chairs to where you have to practice the social distancing. But it's uh, ever, you know, it's not just one thing. It's everything that you can do uh, together trying to make sure that you help make it easier to remember to social distance.
0: It's so complicated, you know, I think uh, running Kroger, running a big company, running a small company, it was so complex to begin with, and now there is just so much more to think about. Turning a minute to kind of the emotional support for your employees and frontline workers, a two-part question. One, what have you done to kind of motivate and support them in a difficult time? And as customers of grocery stores, what could we do to help motivate and support the workers as well?
3: Suzanne, I I really appreciate and love that question in terms of uh, at the front end and I talked about it a little bit a minute ago, but um, you know the emergency leave policy we put in place and trying to be there to support people so they don't have to worry about their financial well being. If they feel like they've got a fever, we also have what we call the helping hands fund where when somebody gets into an economic situation different than they expect, uh, you know, so somebody somebody has a risk of losing their house or not making a car payment or something like that uh, that's available to them so it's really uh all of those things together and customers and you know to me this is one of the things that really makes you feel good about america and the people in america we have stores i get multiple stories every single day where customers you know sometimes it's just writing a thank you note Uh, I saw one this morning where a customer had 20 pizzas delivered to a store Uh, in uh, uh, in Southern uh, Washington. The local fire department, who's obviously also a first responder put together a video to our store team thanking them and then they went and did a parade of the fire trucks through our parking lot with their sirens going. And you know for our store teams and for our warehouses and our plants and our drivers. They find that so uplifting and inspirational when somebody just takes the time to say thank you for doing your job and uh, thank you for uh, helping make our day a little bit easier. And as you know, one of the things, uh, the, one of the reasons we're an essential service, is because everybody needs to eat and everybody needs to eat multiple times a day. And we're there for them. And just taking a moment to re- tell people you appreciate that is a huge uplift. And what i have found is our teams are massively motivated appreciative of it and inspired by it
0: that's so fun to hear i do think it's humanizing all of us and humanizing relationships in a different way i left a thank you note for a delivery person the other day with a little treat with it and he wrote me a thank you note back the next day and now i know his name and he knows mine and it's just a different more human relationship i think than it was before before we let you go let me ask you a question about um, inventory management and it's really on two sides one is one member of the audience is saying when are shelves going to be fully stocked again if you think about some of the small businesses who might be watching today they're going to come to a kroger to try to get the cleaning supplies and paper towels and everything that they need to open again right they're looking for thermometers and ppe themselves so one question is what do you think about the inventory into stores as we hear about meat processing plants closing or we see toilet paper shortages? What do you think about the inventory into your stores? And the second part is, what do you think the long-term implication is for inventory management here? Uh, Does anything change in the long-term as a result of this pandemic?
3: Yeah, one of the things, whenever I get a chance to talk to a national audience, I always tell people uh, there's plenty of things to buy, but just please only buy what you need, please don't hoard. And if you look at like toilet paper as an example, early on there were a group of people that uh, aggressively bought it and our supply chain in the US isn't set up for the demand of toilet paper all of a sudden to go up 4X overnight. If you look at toilet paper going forward, uh, the, the last four Kroger store or I guess five Kroger stores now that I've been in, we've had toilet paper every single day. You keep getting better and better about getting in stock. When I look across the store on pasta and uh, rice and beans yeah. and those things, those things are coming back and they're coming and uh, improving in stock every single day. Hand si- sanitizers have been slower. Uh, uh, some of the cleaning supplies like a Clorox uh, bleach, those things have been slower. But uh, you know, every single day, every uh, CP uh, consumer products good company. Uh, is getting better in business for us. We also have a lot of our own plants and they're operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so it's really all of those things together that's uh, getting us back in stock. If you look at uh, on meat, it's certainly uh, you're, as long as somebody uh, is willing to go maybe one day eat uh, pork or beef or chicken. Uh, I think there will be something available every single day if somebody Uh, wants to eat some type of meat product so you know it's really one of those things where we're trying to all balance it together but there's plenty of inventory in the supply chain. The other thing that uh, has been helpful for us on finding supply and it's obviously not good for restaurants, but uh, if you look at a lot of the restaurant suppliers and given what happened to those businesses, uh, we've been able to partner with Cisco and US food and some of those companies. Uh, to change packaging size, to bring products in, to be able to supply uh, in meat. And I think about like some some areas we're actually repackaging. We found people to take a 50 pound bag of something and make a, you know, one pound bag of something out of it.
0: It's really ingenious. There's a local bakery here uh, that's been repackaging flour. You know, the flour supplies have been so depleted at the stores. I love to see these American entrepreneurs and this ingenuity. Um, Question for you about the long-term implications, and you can pick which one you wanna answer. Do you think there's a long-term implication for inventory management? Are we learning something about the just-in-time supply, or will we go back to normal? And what about things like contactless payment or delivery? You know, a lot of times in moments of disruption, there are innovations that never quite revert. Do you see long-term trends coming out of this?
3: I definitely think there'll be long-term trends. If I know if you look at our pickup and delivery business, it's just skyrocketed. I'm guessing a lot of that will stay on contactless payment. I think some people will use it and some won't. I think it'll be a a mixed bag on the supply chain. I know inside our company, we're spending a lot of time uh, trying to understand. In the past, we've tried to figure out how do you have only a half a day of inventory and how comfortable are you with only having a half a day of inventory? And that is an active internal conversation and debate that I think all companies will have. I definitely think there will be certain items that are produced in other countries that will move back to the U.S. I don't think there's any doubt about that.
0: It's really interesting. You wonder even um, families. You know how this will change how we all, what we all want in our house. You know, do do we all become kind of. Permanent having one month of supply around people as opposed to just in time shoppers. It'll be interesting to see how it all comes out. Um, before we let you go, I would love to let you close on a little bit on your blueprint for business and encouraging this national audience to seek it out. What are you hoping they can gain from that really important project?
3: Yeah, we were, been, were incredibly fortunate that was able to connect with some retail executives in China and Hong Kong, Singapore and Italy, and they shared with us. What are some of the things you can do to keep your associates safe? What are some of the things you can do to keep your customers safe? And every single week we add things to that. We made changes and there's things that we did wrong and there's things that we did right. And one of the things we found out that we did right is if you think you should do it, you should do it. Mm. And we just thought it would be helpful. Uh, to share with others our learning because it's incredibly critical to the United States for all of us to get our businesses back up and running, but make sure that we do it in a way that's safe for customers and safe for your associates employees. And if what we did won't work for everybody, parts of it will work for some, some won't, but we just thought it might be helpful if we shared our learnings and people can decide whether to use it or not and we felt like we're just trying to pay it forward because others paid it forward to us.
0: I think that's just beautiful and just exactly the right tone of this series too which is how can we all learn from each other we know what a job means to a family and to a community and to a health outcome and we want to make sure that we get americans access to their paychecks again as safely and quickly as we can and so this conversation's been a big help i think your project is a big help towards that we were lucky to have you join us today thank you very much
3: thank you suzanne appreciate it a lot
0: hope to see you again soon Absolutely. Okay, turning now to Paul Benda with the American Bankers Association. Uh, welcome, Paul. Thank you for being here.
4: Uh, thank you for having me, Susan.
0: Tell us about the banks. So what are banks doing right now to keep customers safe?
4: Sure. So it's, uh, you know, similar to the grocery stores, the banks never closed. You know, We wanted to make sure that people had access to their funds, uh, but we wanted to do it in a way that kept both our customers safe as well as our, our employees safe. So you know, one of the things that um, banks did early on was actually move to drive-through operations. You know, it's, it's a great way to maintain social distancing uh, where it was where it was possible, and it really reduced the interaction and reduced the the, the risk of you know being exposed to the aerosol or droplets. Uh, we also saw banks. You know, we know some things have to be done in face-to-face, and so banks had implemented uh, by appointment lobby hours, maybe where they couldn't have a drive-through in place. Um, so that way they could limit the amount of people that come in, you know, just like many businesses, you know, they put X's on the ground to make sure that social, social distancing is being maintained. And then, you know, some banks put in place the golden hours for uh, those vulnerable populations where they could come in and ensure that they, they were uh, much lower rate of people that came in and, and come in the first thing in the morning so everything was clean and, and less risk to them.
0: We've had a lot of conversation on today's uh, episode here about different types of equipment. Talk to us about what you're seeing in banks in terms of masks and thermometers and other equipment. Uh, as you think about how you would advise other businesses and their plans to reopen,
4: sure. Uh, you know, I think one of the things, uh, you know, there's no silver bullet here. Uh, we're trying to learn from other sectors as we go forward. Uh, we've seen a lot of banks put in place the the sneeze guards. Uh, some banks luckily already have you know the the bullet-resistant glass, and they can have a good separation between people. Uh, where that's not there, they've been erecting the plexiglass models to try and provide that separation. Uh, we've seen you know some banks were had were prepared and had masks in place and have masks available for their uh, for their employees. Uh, they're also doing screening on the outside for you know when people present for their employment for the lobby. Uh, they do ask some some medical pre-screening questions of people that whether they have symptomology. Uh, We know some folks are actually, you know, having their employees pre-screen themselves before coming to work, you know, and all of them have implemented, you know, good leave policies, really encouraging folks if they're sick to stay home.
0: When you start to think about uh, reopening and gradually phasing in other businesses, joining grocery stores and banks and being open, what kind of guidance do you think companies are going to need?
4: So this has been a, a huge topic of discussion in our industry and I know others have focused on it. You know, one of the big challenges we saw as the pandemic rolled out uh, were the stay at home orders. We, we saw from governors and from different localities and it was a patchwork and there was a lot of confusion on who was an essential employee. You know, it was obvious that you know grocery stores had to be open. It was obvious that medical workers had to be there. Uh, But people hadn't realized, you know, maybe that call center for that bank is an essential employee. You know, people that wanted to call and have access to their money. And we saw this patchwork. And so as we move towards the return to normal operations, uh, what we'd really like to see is, you know, similar to how DHS stood up and put out guidance for who was an emergency essential employee, we'd like to see a federal lead have guidance in terms of how we're going to return to work so that we don't have this patchwork that we have to deal with. You know, a perfect example might be, let's say you choose to do medical screening for people that are entering your facility. Uh, Can that person be a security guard? Or does that person have to be accredited as a healthcare professional? And if you don't pick the right one, are you exposing yourselves to liability? And so having some type of, you know, formalized framework that we can all refer to so that a bank in Nebraska versus a bank in Maine versus a bank in Oregon knows, you know, what what who is the authority having jurisdiction on these issues to make sure they're making the right decisions, and they're following the right guidance, and they can be both, you know, protective to their customers, employees, but also protective from a liability perspective.
0: You raise an interesting point. You know, Like you, we have members all across the country and different geographies have been hit in such different ways and different industries will reopen in such different ways that on one hand you need to really take into account localized and sector conditions on the other hand dealing with a patchwork of information is really complicated for people and I think business owners really are afraid of the liability risk involved because you're asking CEOs to to operate in an imperfect world right?
4: Yeah no that's exactly right this is all about risk mitigation there is no perfect answer to this and you know what we've always told our banks you know ABA represents banks across the country uh, you know, you have to look at local market conditions. You, you, you know, you heard that how Kroger's implementing maybe temperature screening where there's hot spots. We expect different procedures for different market conditions. Uh, but what we'd like to know is what are the requirements that they need to follow to make sure that, you know, we're not stepping outside of the law, that we're making sure we're following local public health or local public health re- reaching back to CDC. You know, just knowing if we are in this phase and we want to take these actions, we want to make sure we're we're following the, guide- the proper guidance and the proper
2: laws.
0: Absolutely. So when you think about businesses starting to reopen, in your imagination which groups of workers are going back
4: first? Well that's a great that's a great question. I think you know a lot of the folks uh, in the manufacturing sector um, would like to, to ramp back up. I mean they have a lot of challenges because the social distancing may or may not be there. Um, we know that banks are probably going to restaff and, and would like to reopen a lot of their lobbies uh, to have um, more access to people to make sure uh, you know as we get these economic impact payments and the treasury sending out you know a million checks a day uh, you know we want to have people to have access to, to their lobby so they can cash those checks and so it's it's, it's tough to see you know it's going to be driven by again those local market conditions some might be at a really low risk and might be willing to open up uh, things like restaurants or other types of entertainment venues uh, with the appropriate social distancing you know i i go back to the earlier speaker um, Dr. Hewlett, who talked about uh, wearing masks. I really think that's a great way. You know, I wear my mask to protect you, you wear your mask to protect me. I think doing that really mitigates the risk for everyone involved and maybe gives a little bit more flexibility on what businesses can open.
0: It was interesting. We talked to the CEO of Kroger a minute ago about contactless payments, and we're getting a question from the audience here about do you see this leading to a decrease in cash cash usage going forward?
4: So we we've, we've tried to track that. It's hard to know um, in terms of the numbers that we've seen, say, which is credit card transactions or others, uh, mobile payments. You know, we have seen an increase. It could be anywhere from 10 to 20 percent in those types of payments. Now it's hard to so know whether you know that's based upon you know baseline increase or it's a COVID-based increase. But I, I clearly think that you know the way I describe it is you know people's defaults might change. You know, just like people. Normally, would default to drive to the grocery store and buy. Now, the default might be, "Hey, you know what? I'm just going to set up my my you know delivery process." Uh, people might have set up contactless payments on their phones now, and that becomes the default. They'll still want cash. They'll still want credit cards, uh, but that you know their first form of payment or their first action might have changed after this experience.
0: I think it'll be uh, interesting to see how many of these changes switch right we're even noticing it with remote working that an older generation who didn't love this technology is actually loving it and a younger generation who wanted to remote work all the time is really missing face to face and so it'll be fun and interesting to see how people come together when this is over let me ask you one last question paul um, here in Washington, D.C., we've been on a fairly restrictive lockdown. As you think about reopening the D.C. economy, what's your guess on what the, that looks like here locally?
4: <laughs> so I get that, you know, as the, as the person that's leading the back to uh, normal operations for the ABA, I get that question a lot from staff. Um, I really think the challenge we've got is the lack of testing and the the unknown unknowns that are out there. We don't know how many people are sick. We don't know who's asymptomatic. Um, You know, I used to to run a, a chemical and biological defenses for the Pentagon. And we had always focused on passive protection measures because you may not know necessarily if someone had released an agent in the air. This virus is very similar. You don't know if someone's symptomatic or asymptomatic who could be a carrier. And so I think it's gonna be a mixture of us moving forward, of passive protection, which would be something like that mask, that social distancing you do just as a matter of course to protect yourselves. And then as we get better knowledge of the contact tracing, the the screening that's in place, uh, we can move forward. I, I, I would be surprised in the DC area If we have a significant movement back to on-site operations before June, I think mid-June is kind of what we're planning for us to start rolling into that space. I'm hoping maybe our testing regimes ramp up and we can accelerate that, but I I just don't see any significant movement in that direction until until mid-June.
0: Well, listen, I think we all learned a lot today. I'm so appreciative, Paul, of you being with us and joining the other guests. These have been great sessions. And uh, if you've missed any, you can watch them at uschamberfoundation.org. If you have ideas for future programs, you can email them to foundation at uschamber.com. Join us again Monday at 3 o'clock. And, Paul, thanks so much for being with us and wrapping us up today.
4: Thank you so much, Suzanne.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Bye. <laughs>